tonight. So, um, although I'm now going to wreck the moment by telling an extremely bad story, <laughs> um, don't, don't lose the moment. We, we are in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and as we open his word together, he wants to continue that which he has already been doing. Nehemiah, chapter 2. Ah, can I have a clicker? Thank you. There we are, Nehemiah. Planning. A rather old-fashioned lady who, who really planned things down to the last detail, to the nth degree, was, was planning a couple of weeks' holiday. Uh, but for the first time, she was going to try going to a campsite, which was very brave of her, in, in that, you know, she was quite old, and this was the first time. Ah, welcome, Matt. Been away on a worship leaders' conference Stuart Townend, Graham Kendrick. <laughs> Has it been good? Excellent. Well, we've had Helen Jerry in the St. Mark's Worship Band. <laughs> you were. <laughs> But uh, that, so it would be great to hear some of the things you've been up to and that you've received. Uh, fantastic experience. Okay, right, back to my old lady, planning this uh, campsite. Now, um, but she was also a delicate and elegant lady with her language. And she, what she really wanted to know was whether the toilet facilities were going to be adequate on this site. Now, I don't know if any of you are, are campsite people, but the toilet facilities do vary somewhat, do they not? Um, so she wrote a letter asking about whether or not the place was fully equipped. But she didn't know how to sort of phrase toilet facilities because she was a very delicate lady and, and just felt that it was a, you know, she couldn't bring herself really to write the word toilet. So after much deliberation, she came up with the phrase bathroom commode. Okay, and she wrote that down, but she still felt very uncomfortable about that, and so she put B.C., knowing that they would understand by the phraseology of everything else she was writing, what she was after. Well, the campground owner uh, wasn't old-fashioned at all, and when he got the letter, he didn't know what on earth she was talking about. BC really stumped him. He showed it around a few of the staff. None of them could work it out at all. He showed one or two of the other campers. Finally, one lady said, well, well it's probably she wants to know where the, lay, where the local Baptist church is. So he sat down and wrote the following reply. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the camp <laughs> and is capable of seating 250 people at a time. Now, I admit it is quite a distance, and if you're in the habit of going regularly... Uh, but nonetheless, you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along with them. They make a day of it. They arrive early and come home late. Now, the last time my wife and I went was six years ago. <laughs> and it was so crowded, we had to stand up the whole time. <laughs> but you'll be interested to know that there's a supper planned to raise money to buy more seats. Uh, they plan to hold the supper in the middle of the BC so everyone can watch and talk about this great event. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly. 
and it's surely not for desire on my part. But as we grow older, it seems more and more of an effort. (laughs) Particularly in cold weather. (laughs) If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time, and I could sit with you and introduce you to the other folks. This is, after all, a very friendly community. There we are. Doesn't do to do your planning too well, does it? And uh, planning is what this second half of Nehemiah chapter 2 is about. Uh, if you remember, I, I, was, I tried to do the whole of chapter 2 last time, and I gave up, I think it was at about verse 11, um, verse 10, in fact. So we've looked at the first half of the chapter, and now we are at Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. Um, the story so far, I'm going to do this each time, it's going to get quicker and quicker, but sometimes there are people that have come in and haven't heard uh, what's happened so far and don't know the story too well. Nehemiah set at the time of the exile when the Jews were taken in captivity to Babylon uh, and Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the walls were broken down, the gates were burnt down. And uh, we are now at the time where some of the exiles have gone back, led by Ezra the priest, who has rebuilt the temple, but has not thought anything about the defenses. Now some people come back to Jerusalem, tell Nehemiah this. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, he's a slave, but he's sort of been recognized as a, an all-round good bloke uh, and has been given this important job. And so he goes back to, uh, or, or rather he realizes the bigger picture. He realizes it's no good just getting the temple sorted out where there are hostile armies surrounding the city and at any moment they're going to be able to get back in because the wall has not been rebuilt and the, and the temple will be destroyed again. So he is very upset about this. What does he do? He prays, he fasts, he beseeches God and he waits for an opportunity, an opportunity to go into the king and to find out if it's going to be possible for him to be released and to take a party of people back with him to Jerusalem. And what God has put in his heart is that he will rebuild the wall. Um, This is how he does it. If you remember, he goes into the king and he looks sad. (laughs) And the king says, why are you so sad? And that's his opportunity. He has been praying for this opportunity. He waits three months and now he has it. He takes the opportunity and says... I want to go back to Jerusalem, basically. A bit longer than that, but that's what I want to go to Jerusalem because I am sad for my people who are in great peril, who are in great danger. And so the king says yes, because God is in control. God is orchestrating this, and although there's no reason why the king should be interested in releasing his cupbearer to do this, God is guiding his heart and his hands and his mind. And if you remember, I said, don't even begin to think that God only needs people who are Christians to do his work. If he did, well, you know, to say nothing would get done is unfair. But, you know, uh, we're all too busy arguing normally to get on with (laughs) spreading the kingdom of God, you know. Uh, I jest, but it's not too far from the truth sometimes. And God is working out there in people's hearts as he puts together his plan, and he worked together in this king's heart. So there he is, asking the king, asking the queen as well, uh, because she is sitting there with him. They make this joint decision, and he is allowed to go. And here it is. That's his route. Um, It's not nipping down 
to Asda. <laughs> this was a lengthy, lengthy journey. Uh, but he was determined because God had put this on his heart. And once God puts something on your heart, nothing should stop you from fulfilling that which God has told you to do. Okay, so we build up to all of this excitement. And he's there. He enters Jerusalem. After these months and months of praying and planning and waiting for the moment, and we don't know how long this journey took, but it was a lengthy old journey, and he is there. And he knows what it is that needs doing. So what does he do? What does he do? Now, that's an interesting thing. Um, I remember when I first, I may have told you this, when I first became rector of the Ursham group of parishes, it was my first appointment. I'd been curate. When you're curate, you come into the job and you have a vicar who, who to begin with, tells you what to do. <laughs> that's the way it works, isn't it? You know, he gives you the list of all the things he doesn't want to do. <laughs> And so, you know, your life is, is sort of fairly prescribed. But then when you go into your, your first job, it's not like that. And I can remember, you know, the excitement of the induction, sitting in my study the next day thinking, now what? <laughs> what do I do? I had a clear diary. The vicar before me was, you know, he wasn't an administrator, a marvelous man of God, visited lots of people, but there were n nothing was left. There was n I didn't even know where my church wardens lived, <laughs> and I had 12 of them, because six parishes. So I thought, what, what do I do? Now, that's not the case for Nehemiah. He already knew what he was going to do. So there he gets it. All this excitement, it's built up to this point. So what does he do? Well, nothing. <laughs> you look at it if you're following. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days. Three days. I'd not noticed that before. You see, if I was Nehemiah and I'd got there, I'd be, I'd be out straight away, I think. I'd, because I'd, all these months, I'd think, I've done all my praying, you know. What was he doing for three days? Well, we don't know. But what do you think? Have a guess. Let's speculate. What might he be doing? No, not yet. Because it says, after three days I set out. Sorry? Well, he might have been resting after a long journey. Yeah, so the hammock might be right. <laughs> Seeking, God. Seeking God. Is it something about... The silence, the long silence that Helen was talking about. We already know he was a great man of prayer. Uh, and it seems to me that this, this was a man, you know, I, I see Nehemiah very much as a doer and a man of action. But if you read the little verses and the in-between bits, it's not just that. He, he may have wanted to do a little bit more planning in his mind, pre-planning, even before he set out on, on, on his recce around the walls, which we come to in a moment. But I believe what he was really doing in those three days was in the place, was seeking God. Seeking God. So often in church life, we just plow into things, don't we? We plow into things before really finding the mind of God. 
you know, even the, the, the short time of silence we had tonight and the worship and, and the singing in, in tongues, which for me is just a great thing to do, opens up a space so that I don't know about you, but I'm in an entirely different place spiritually now than I was at 6 o'clock. Because, you know, it's been a busy day and you're rushing. I've had to do lots of preparation and all that sort of thing. Different church this morning, St. Margaret's, you know. So, so it's all been that sort of day. But just in that small amount of silence, so, so God has sort of tweaked me. <laughs> so if you're going to do something big for God, give big time of quiet. And don't rush into things until your mind is and your heart is aligned with his. He did nothing, only he didn't do nothing. You can bet your bottom dollar that, that he was using that three days really, really well. Okay, and then we get to verse 12, which is the bit, you know, as I said, I missed the three days before. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, and there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. <laughs> Typical vicar. <laughs> Nobody else had a horse, just he had the horse. Now, that, that's interesting. There, there are several interesting things about this verse. Why at night? Why at night? I mean... They, they would have had torches, you know, lit torches, but they, they wouldn't have been able to see much. Why this secrecy? And why isn't he sort of telling people at this stage? And why does nobody else have a horse? Well, well I think he's wanting to keep everything as low-key as possible. If he'd have done this during the day with a whole party of people all on horses, it would have been very clear to the opposition who he already knows about, that something was afoot. And until, I believe, Nehemiah was thinking, until we actually start the work and we've got everybody in place, I don't want people to know outside what's going on because they will start to undermine it before it's got going. I think it's something of that. You see, if you look back to verse 10, Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, when they heard about this, that's them traveling to Jerusalem, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So the last thing he wants to do then at this point is to give them too much information. But it's not just that. It's not just that. You see, it seems to me that if he had announced the danger that people were in and what they needed to do before he was fully ready, then there would have been a great deal of panic. And, and it would have been difficult to mobilize people because there would have been opposition and there would have been panic and every man and his dog would have an idea of how to build, rebuild the wall. No, he needed to get things right with God in his mind first. So he travels round. He travels round. Now, this is something that some of you will have seen before, and I keep saying it because I think it's absolutely vital. Whenever you engage on a new enterprise for God, and I see it here. Oh, I should have shown you that. That's the, uh, that's the actual wall. There it is. 
Um, this is the uh, path that he trod. Um, of course, the wall wouldn't be up. It wouldn't have looked like that. That's the completed wall. Um, but he would have traveled all of the way round that. Um, we'll read that in a moment. But of course, the place was ruined. He does this at night, as I've said. What's going on? Okay, well, it's this. Anything that you engage on for God has got to have God reasons for doing it. Theology is simply God reasons. God reasons. That's all it means. You have to know in God what you are about before you start. You have to make sure that you have a good God reason for doing anything for the kingdom of God. There's too much half-baked stuff that happens in the life of the church where somebody sees an idea that somebody else is doing and thinks, oh, right, let's have a go at that. But God hasn't told them to do it. And it may not be right for them at that time in the church. And, and particularly as people start to worry about falling numbers and less young people involved, so we can panic a little bit and we just grab hold of things and we have no God reason for doing it. You see, you see a word like theology and you think, well, that's for people that, that have had you know, three years training. Well, it's not. Any Christian disciple with their Bible and a healthy prayer life has a theology and can find the God reasons for doing things. Now, Nehemiah had that. It had been burnt into his heart the moment he had heard from the exiles when they returned. And over these months, it's become over, over prayer and fasting uh, and, and searching his soul, that theology, the God reasons for doing what he is going to do have become absolutely clear in his mind. But as yet, they're in nobody else's mind. Maybe one or two of his trusted confidants that he had brought with him from Jerusalem might know something of what God is laying on his heart. But nobody else. But for him... It's absolutely rock solid. Now, once you've got your theology, then you start thinking of a model, a, a way in which it is going to work. You think of anything that we have done here, you know, the starting of Mark 2. We, we had God reasons for doing it, and we prayed over those for, 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 for quite a number of months. And we came up with a model of how it would work. And then, of course... You have to do it, the practice. And those three things hold true, I believe, for almost anything that you, you are trying to do in church life. And, and this isn't just for, you know, like me as a leader of a church. This isn't just for the staff team of the church. This is for you, for anything that God is calling you to do within our fellowship or, or anywhere else for that matter. God reasons for doing it. And then a practical way in which it is going to be achieved. And that's why I love Nehemiah, because he has this balance. You know, some people will have, oh, yeah, God wants me to do this, and I'm just going to wait for all the doors to open. And surprise, surprise, when they don't, because they're not doing any work. <laughs> but other people just work and beaver away, and it's sort of like they're banging their head against a brick wall because they're just working. You must have both. God reasons for doing something, and then a well-thought-out scheme by which you're going to attempt to do the things that God has told you to do, and only then 
do you start trying to do it? And what Nehemiah is doing now is working on this second bit. He's got his theology, and now he's working on the model. So that's what he is doing. That's what he is doing. And look at him. Here he goes. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal whirl and the dung gate. <laughs> what a name for a gate. <laughs> Where do you live? By the dung gate. Hmm. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. Detail, detail. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. But notice, the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet... I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any of the others who would be doing the work. He hasn't told them because all of these people have previously been in positions of leadership. Now, an alternative to this is he could have organized the committee and got all of the key players. Now, there are places for committees, (laughs) I wouldn't like to say where those places are. (laughs) No, there are places for committees, you know, that that meet together for a purpose. But if he had just pulled all of these people together who already had their own little power bases and empires, can you imagine? You know, he'd be halfway through a sentence of what he was going to do, and somebody would be saying, oh, no, but we like that bit of ruin wall because it's been like that for a long time. We've got used to it. And, And... all the reasons why you might not do something. No, he's not working like that because he knows that God has raised him up to be the man for the hour, the person for that time. You remember the phrase, uh, for such a time as this. Uh, that, that He knows that and he's not going to share that because this is his anointing and he will only share it when the time is right. So there we are. And he has a very detailed look. Um, I've read the, you know, this is only skirts on what he is, a very detailed look. <laughs> you know, you know this, this is the other thing. That, that sometimes you get people and they have the great idea and they, they have a, uh, an idea of how it should start. And then they sort of stand back and say, oh, yes, but I'm an ideas man. well it's right that some people are ideas people but notice he says of all of the other leaders and the officials and the Jews and the priests he says they are going to be doing the work yes the church needs its ideas people but the ideas people have with everybody else to roll up their sleeves and do it Because we are not in a position of luxury. We never have been in the church. Sometimes we've given the, you know, when we've been well thought of and churches have been full because it's been fashionable to go to church. And that doesn't happen very often, quite frankly. But when it has happened, then perhaps people have thought, oh, well, we'll let them up there do the work. You know, I can remember one PCC I worked with in a very tiny village, and everybody always had lots of ideas, but nobody wanted to do any work. 
I think they thought I would do it all. <laughs> and I didn't, because I had five other churches, and I was looking at mobilizing people, men and women of God, who wanted to make a difference and were willing to work with each other to make a difference. Brothers and sisters, we need people who will roll up their sleeves and get stuck in. It's not enough just to receive and receive and receive and receive. There is work to do. I want to see this service doubling in size. Because this is one of the places where people can get equipped and really meet with God. There's all sorts of things in, in, in the life of our churches that, where we're just, frankly, only just hanging on. We may think things are going well and that we're growing, but look below the surface. You know that there's so much that needs doing, and we need people who will do the work. But Nehemiah is keeping them in the dark at the moment until he has got his mind around the whole of this model that he is working on. Okay, he's got the theology. Now he's got a model for the project. Now, by the way, can I say that uh, at this point? His model is the starting place. As, as we go through, you'll see that they have to modify what they do every now and then as the situation changes. When we started Mark II, which is almost, you know, it's getting on for four years now. When we started Mark II, we had a theology and we had a model. And we started. But the Mark II that we started in October, whenever it was, four years ago, is very different from the Mark II that we run now, Sunday by Sunday. Because hopefully we're allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit, and we have evolved, depending on the resources that we've gotten, depending on the needs. But what it's for, the God reasons, the theology hasn't changed at all. So, so I say that because sometimes, you know, you can have a model and say, this is how we're going to do this thing. And we are not going to move from it one iota. <laughs> and that's no good because we have to depend on the Holy Spirit and things change. Well, then comes the launch. And it's only when, as I've said, he's got his head around the problem, he's really done his reconnaissance well. And we don't know if there were many nights that he did this. It doesn't say. He knows what is in his heart. He's got an idea now of how it's going to be achieved. And so he speaks to them. And it reminded me, this particular verse that I'm going to share in a moment, of standing in Ditchingham Church, one of my six parishes in the last place. And it was a fairly cold, I think it was a February morning, and there were about 15 in the congregation in a church that was a mile outside of the village with no facilities, had electricity, but nowhere to meet for children, um, no water in the church, no toilet uh, uh, or bathroom commode. <laughs> and, and there was a small group of, of fairly elderly people. And I used these words from Nehemiah. Do you not see the trouble we are in? And these are Nehemiah's words at this point. Do you not see 
the trouble we are in. There it is in verse 17. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Can't you see the trouble we are in? You see, if it had started the committee early, (laughs) people's minds would just be on what they had to do, but they wouldn't see the gravity of the situation. He confronts them with it. He tells it as it is. I always think bishops in the Church of England must think that every church is full. Because whenever they go out to a service, it's a bit like the Queen, you know, thinking that everywhere always smells of new paint. (laughs) Wherever they go, people make an effort and they gather people together or you have a benefit service and, and it's... And and the church is full. And if you have an induction, the church is full because everyone wants to come and see the new person. And, 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 And where they are, the church is full. And you have confirmations at the cathedral and they're marvelous occasions, 80 or 90 people from across the diocese. And 800 people have been confirmed and 800 people in the congregation. And it's easy to think if you're always in that sort of situation, well, things aren't too bad then. Do you not see the trouble we are in? As we look across our churches, and I see it now as rural dean more than I've ever seen it, I suppose, although I did see it when when I had a country set of parishes. You know, little, little churches with four or five people struggling to keep it going and, and look, trying to look ten years into the future, or even five, you think, what's going to happen? And our church, you know, I, I, God has blessed us and, and great. But numbers of young families, we have some, but we don't have enough. We have a fantastic youth group. But we need more because we've got to build that younger generation because the story of the church over the land is there are few young people. Do you not see the trouble we are in? That in certain places, there are massive numbers. Lowestoft Community Church, lots of young people. Fantastic. Please, God, bless that church and its work. But, you know, there's 70,000 people in this town. Do you not see the trouble we are in? You see, we can bury our head in the sand and just think everything's okay. Well, it's not It's not. There is a massive work to be done. And can I... I don't like to be a moaner when I preach. But can I say, even in this church, where there are people growing in their faith and filled with the Spirit and really up for mission, you know, we find it hard to get enough people to set up the tables for Mark 2. Tim and I did it last night because there were spaces on the rotor. Well, that's a little thing. But it, it, it's endemic of a situation where not enough people are prepared to roll up their sleeves and get stuck in with the work, whether it be unglamorous or a bit more glamorous. We can no longer take it for granted that the church will just carry on. I had a lovely time with, with, with the people of St. Margaret's this morning in Lowestoft. 
And I suppose they had 70 people there, something like that. But there were very... I mean, I, I, was, I was one of the youngest. Which is a worry. I mean, I know I only look 30. <laughs> well, you don't have to laugh quite so loudly. <laughs> you know, do you not see the trouble we are in? I mean, we have great encouragement here. Who was here for the uh, home groups meeting on Tuesday? Yeah. Now, I was just so blessed by that because I suddenly saw all the generations, you know, studying the Bible in our small groups. That's just such a blessing. 90 people, we think, roughly, 80 to 90 people involved in in meeting together for fellowship and for praying for one another and and engaged in, in Bible study. And, well, all the groups are very, very different. And that's, that encouraged me as well, because I like that. So we have great encouragements, but you know, I'm not going to be happy, I'm afraid, until we have seating problems. I'm not going to be happy until we see children's work with children working in their separate ages and enough space for them to do it. I'm not going to be happy until we have a have a youth group that can no longer meet for its cell meetings in our house and has to start multiplying. I'm not going to be happy until there's a problem in the morning in fitting everybody in Mark 2 and fitting everybody in here. And people are saying to me, well, Ian, we can't come together anymore around community. Those are the sorts of problems I want to be having brought to me, please. <laughs> problems of growth and, and, and seeing the Holy Spirit move, seeing healing. Seeing people's lives moving on. Seeing emotional healings. People that have been stuck for years and years and years with the same problems being released from it. I'm not going to be happy until that's happening. You see, there is so much to do. And if we just sit still and stand still and say, well, things are going okay, thank you very much, we needn't try any harder, then this applies to us. Do you not see the trouble we are in? We must always be looking outwards to the mission field in which God has put us. So he says this. But notice this. There are actually, in one sense, lots of people doing this. I may have told you the diocese has a, um, uh, in one of the offices, has a dead by Wednesday file. (laughs) And in that they put all the new paper articles that they collect where it says the church is, is going to be finished, you know. Um, it's going to be dead by Wednesday. Um, in actual fact, bits of the church may be dead by Wednesday, and that's probably because they should be. Because I do actually believe, as I've said many, many times before, that God watches over all of us, and he looks for men and women who are prepared to do his will, and then he starts pouring in his blessing. And where people are not prepared to do it, well then, he just lets them get on with whatever they're doing. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sorry that, that they, they will just dwindle. And that's very, very sad. Unless, you know, God can burst in through a few people and make a difference. And so, so God's purposes will always work out. It's just always my worry as a church leader that we might be some of the people being missed out because we're not being open to God and obedient to his Holy Spirit. Because that's what I'm going to have to answer to in heaven <laughs> about. Uh, that's, that's the important stuff. All right, so he doesn't just leave them with do not see, you see the trouble we are in. He then says, 
can't remember what I've put next. Ah, yes. <laughs> Come, let us rebuild. So in other words, he isn't just coming in with a negative that, well, there's this problem. He says, yeah, there is this problem, but come, let's go. Because now he has the plan in his mind. He has the model. He is ready. And, and he, can, he can go to all, all of these people and say, well, yes, this is the situation we're in. And you really need to see the trouble we are in, because otherwise you're not going to have the motivation to roll up your sleeves and get involved. But once you see the trouble we are in, then come, let us rebuild, let us rebuild. And there's a little bit of a challenge as well. And this is no bad thing. He says to them, and then we'll no longer be in disgrace. Because if our church is not doing the things that God wants us to, then we're in disgrace. You know, it's not a little thing. God only has one plan, and it involves the church. You may not think it's a good plan. (laughs) Perhaps he should have left it up to the angels. They might be more reliable, but that's not his plan. His plan is that the church shows the world what it is to have a relationship with God and says, come in. And find that God loves you too. And you can have a relationship with with God. That's what the church is for. That's the plan. And if we're not doing it, we're in disgrace. And and we need to know that. It's not good enough. And where churches um, have, have sort of terrible arguments about insubstantial things, it's a disgrace. And where people are gossiping behind other people's backs, it's a disgrace. And, 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 and where people are doing anything that is hindering the work of the Holy Spirit through a church, it's a disgrace. And, you know, let's, let's name these things. Just it seems to me that he's a very straight bloke, isn't he? He says, this is the problem. Let's do something about it. And if we don't, then it's a disgrace. <laughs> He's sort of like the Sir Alec Ferguson of the... <laughs> giving the hairdryer treatment to his... Well, maybe not, but anyway. You see, disciples, I believe, who are, who are being led by the Holy Spirit, see the issues for what they are, not prepared, and, and not worried about in love saying the truth, but then offer solutions. Mature Christian disciples offer solutions. You know, it's time to come off of the playground. Uh, Speak to Caroline about the the battle they're having with their year sixes this term. (laughs) A few of their year six boys. Zero tolerance, is that right now? About name calling and that sort of thing. Playground disputes. You know, I used to be a teacher for 15 years. They'd come to you and say, Mr. Bentley, so-and-so's pushed me. And I would Try not to say, well, for goodness sake, just go and push them back, because that wasn't the right thing to say. (laughs) But these are childhood disputes. Grown-ups offer solutions. Grown-ups offer solutions. And as grown-up Christians, yeah, let's see the reality, but let's be people who say, but what about this, and is this possible? Positive Christian living. But remember, 
everything that has brought Nehemiah to this point. Because from now on, it does seem like a man of action. But remember the months of prayer and of fasting and of seeking God and of planning and then praying again. All of that has brought them to this point. And then he reminds them of what they've got to depend on as they, enter, uh, as they, as they rebuild this wall. He's just said it, come let us rebuild. (laughs) Well, you can say that, but it's a massive undertaking, isn't it? And so what did he tell them about? He reminded them of the gracious hand of my God on me. Remember what I said about standing in the anointing? That's this. The hand of God, the gracious hand of God upon him. And he reminds them of that. In other words, God is with us in this. Because God has put this on my heart, and we're going to do it together, but we, we are standing in the anointing. And he also reminds them of what the king has said, you know, that is given permission. Because immediately the opposition comes, they say, does the king know about this? So everybody can say, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> and he said, it's okay. So clear off, which is effectively what they do say. And because of all of this, the people respond. Here it is, verse 17. Um, No, no, verse 18. I told them about the gracious hand of God, what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Isn't that a lovely phrase? (laughs) And so they began this good work. Faithful people out here, the things you are doing for God and for his kingdom, are a good work. Now, sometimes those things that you are doing will exhaust you. And if the things that, you don't, that you're doing don't exhaust you, then sometimes the people that you are doing them with will exhaust you, <laughs> particularly your vicar. <laughs> but it's a good work. It's a good work. I had a text from a friend. He was asking me what I was doing during the day. I'm not a Christian. Uh, and, uh, and I explained that it was this and this and this. And it was one of those fraught days, um, you know, end-on meetings and funerals and all that sort of thing. And, and he texted back to, and said, it's just as well you love what you are doing. And I thought, well, I'm really glad that you can see that in me because I can't always see it myself. Because it is a good work to which we are called, even though it may be very, very difficult. So the people respond. And have they responded because of Nehemiah's great leadership? Well, in part, maybe. But I don't think so in totality. They've responded because Nehemiah knows what it is that God wants to do. And and just like Nehemiah had got the king sort of tweaked in order to make the right decisions... So all of the other people are being sort of tweaked by the Holy Spirit so they are ready to make the right decisions. Nehemiah's leadership is in following God, but is also clever in the way that he works things. And nothing wrong with that at all. So they begin the good work, and opposition kicks in immediately as we come towards the end. 
when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And that's where everyone can say, no, no, we're not. And, and Nehemiah can get his letters out. But he doesn't actually bother. But he knows that he has the king behind him. But remember what I said at the beginning. You see, I think they would have been up there undermining the work much earlier than this. By now, Nehemiah has got all of the people with him. And so it's much harder for these guys to actually start chipping away because they're all sharing the vision. That's the reason for the secret tours. And then he uses the language of the team, and I love this. I answered, the God of heaven will give us success. There they are, ranged behind him. Now, this chapter has moved very quickly from Nehemiah on his horse, on his own, well, maybe with two or three, and him using the words me and my, to now, it's us. Team player, a team player. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. The language of faith, the language of the team, working together. But just note this as I finish. Because you may think this is a bit off, really. You know, he could have just stopped there, but he actually goes on and he says, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, of course, there's lots of arguments about land between Jew and Arab, but I don't think this is in the Bible for that reason for us. I think... This is about spiritual warfare. Good, I must be right. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you see, Jesus, you know, there's no time to to unpack this now, but but you know Jesus in, in the wilderness. And he's basically saying the same thing as Nehemiah is saying to Sambalat and co. You, You don't have any right What's the old song? Satan has no authority here that we used to sing. Yeah, do you remember that? One of the 70s, yeah. And, and I, I'm not a sort of demons under the bed sort of Christian that, 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 that's always thinking in terms of spiritual warfare. But it's going on. <laughs> it's going on. And since we've been here, I can, I can, I can take you through a history of attacks that have happened. Sometimes things that I can hardly share with anybody. <laughs> attack upon attack. And it's, it's because we're attempting to do God's will, and so there will be resistance. But what we have to do in that situation is to say, well, I know what God wants me to do, and Satan is a defeated enemy. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we, we can get worried and we can get scared, and we shouldn't take lightly the threat of spiritual warfare or the fact that Satan is a powerful enemy, but he's a defeated enemy. 
And sometimes we just have to say, I'm sorry, clear off. You've got no right to be here. And, and you know, the powers of darkness and, and, and Satan and, and his legions of darkness, they have no right to be in this church. They have no right to be in your life. And they have no right to be in your homes and in, in your relationships and everything else because you are his. And he has defeated the devil. Uh, and so, you know, I think this is a lovely picture of that. Uh, now, I'm sure if I ever would, were to meet Sam Bellat, he'd be very cross that I've just, I've just sort of uh, described him as the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> but, but I think all of these things, these, these, um, they have double meanings for us. They have deeper meanings. You know that, don't you? That the Bible is like a mine and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And all the way through this story, these are the Satan figures. And right at the outset, he is saying, Nehemiah is saying, you have no claim. And we should say that more often, shouldn't we? As much as anything else to remind ourselves, but also we know that at the name of Jesus, he flees. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hallelujah. I mean, James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. End of story. Now, you say to me, it's not always as easy as that, and I agree. But it's only not always as easy as that normally because of where we put ourselves. And I know in my own heart, I know in my own heart that there are some situations where I'm not totally wanting the victory. Because if we want it, it's there for us to claim. So, they are poised. Theology in place, model in place. And the next chapter opens us out into the whole business of the practice and doing it. And uh, that's what we'll be looking at next time. But now I would love to pray with you. So would you please stand? get into that place again where we are receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming down like oil. The gracious hand of God is upon you as he was upon Nehemiah. And as I prayed last time, I ask you to Say, well, what is God laying on your heart? And what, what area have you been challenged about? Can you see where the big trouble is in a particular area? And God is saying, do something about that. Or maybe it's just a little bit of trouble in an area that God is saying, well, actually, that's you. You can do something about that situation, that job that needs doing, that area of mission, that person. that needs praying with. And what is there happening in your life where you've got to say, enough, no further. Satan, you have no authority in my life. You must go and I will stop doing this thing that is wrong.
and that is not coming from God. Because if there is something like that, then just be honest now, as Nehemiah was honest, and say, can you see the trouble I'm in? And I name it. And I want to rebuild. And can I ask you, how committed are you to the rebuilding of this place here at St. Luke's and St. Mark's? Are you going to be one that steps up and rolls up your sleeves? Many of you already are. But there's a huge work to do. Because although things seem reasonable, we are still in trouble. We are not in the place totally that God wants us to be. Perhaps we never will be, but we need to get closer to it. Holy Spirit, come now, I pray, upon your people. Just as you've been doing all evening through the worship and through the word, come now and rest on the heads and then in the hearts and minds of your people and do your work. Feel now, please, the gracious hand of God upon you, resting upon you. And then allow him to minister to you in whatever it is that he is wanting to do. You can see that happening now. People receiving. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, we've already started the rebuilding here, but let this be a time when perhaps things accelerate from this moment. And if God is touching your heart now, then almost certainly you should get prayer with other people. Just to clarify what's going on. You may need, like Nehemiah, a bit of quiet first to think and to pray. And uh, perhaps we can have some quiet, worshipful music uh, just to help us to get into that place and to stay in the place where we are. And as we're in that place, we, we also need to hear words and pictures that have been given to people already at deeper before the service. And as always, this is the time for you to do business with God. And you use it as it's best used for you. So if that's going for prayer, after Maggie has shared these things, the prayer ministry team will go to the back and be ready to pray with you. Um, we had a picture of a dark, stormy sky clearing to a really bright blue sky. And the words, do not be afraid. I have called you by your name. And then another picture of a deep, dark hole and a person being drawn into it. People in the light on the outside trying to draw the person away. And again, the words, I have called you by your name. Do not be afraid. And then we had a feeling, a pain in the right-hand side in the groin area. And then somebody had a suggestion of healing within our church. 
people coming forward for anointing. Don't be afraid. God heals his people. The more that come forward, the more will be healed. And then we saw a flame. It couldn't be extinguished, no matter how hard the wind blew it. Stand together to keep the flame unquenchable. Then we had a picture of a grasshopper on lush green grass. And the person who saw this felt it was someone jumping around and couldn't, someone who couldn't settle. And then she also saw a pile of black sooty curl and a pair of scissors. She felt that the scissors would cut up the curl. Somebody is in a black place but can get out of it. If anything touches you, please come for prayer ministry. Clear call there for many things, in particular for healing. And uh, it could be that God is wanting to give gifts of healing. Um, uh, By that I mean to actually make you someone by his gifting who will be part of the healing ministry. In particular, if your hands are tingling, that's often a sign that God wants to do that. So if that's happening to you, go and get prayer and get people to pray with you. And as we've thought about the good work, the good work that we are engaged in, um, if you're feeling tired in that good work that you are doing, well, perhaps you need to get some prayer tonight for more power and a fresh anointing. Don't miss the opportunity. Uh, We're not going to close the service formally, um, but as prayer ministers, perhaps if a few of you can go to the back of the church now and be ready there, go with them if you would like prayer. Uh, If you want to just have a bit of time of quiet praying first, then do. But don't miss the opportunity to go for prayer if God has been at work in your spirit tonight. Father, keep your anointing coming. Send your spirit. And help us to be equipped to be people who can join in the rebuilding work that has been going on ever since the fall in Genesis as we build towards the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven.